Section 10 of Europe and Elsewhere by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by John Greenman. Chapter 8 Down the Rhone, Part 2. I had been longing to have personal experience of peasant life, be on the inside and see it for myself, instead of at second hand in books. This was an opportunity, and I was excited about it, and glad. The kitchen was not clean, but it was a sociable place, and the family were kind and full of good will. There were three little children, a young girl, father, mother, grandparents, some dogs, and a plurality of cats. There was no discord perfect harmony prevailed. Our table was placed on the lawn on the river bank. One had no right to expect any finer style here than he would find in the cheapest and shabbiest little tavern in America, for the Hotel du Rhone Moine was for foot-wanderers and laborers on the flat boats that convey stone and sand and wood to Lyon, yet the style was superior, very much so. The tablecloth was white, and it and the table furniture were perfectly clean. We had a fish of a pretty coarse grain, but it was fresh from the river and hot from the pan. The bread was good. There was abundance of excellent butter. The milk was rich and pure, the sugar was white, the coffee was considerably better than that which is furnished by the choice hotels of the capitals of the continent. Thus far peasant life was a disappointment. It was so much better than anything we were used to at home in some respects. Two of the dogs came out presently and sat down by the table and rested their chins on it, and so remained. It was not to beg, for they showed no interest in the supper. They were merely there to be friendly. It was the only idea they had. A squadron of cats came out by and by and sat down in the neighborhood and looked me over languidly, then wandered away without passion, in fact with what looked like studied indifference. Even the cats and the dogs are well and sufficiently fed at the Hotel du Rhone Moine. Their dumb testimony was as good as speech. I went to bed early. It is inside the house, not outside that one really finds the peasant life. Our rooms were over the stable, and this was not an advantage. The cows and horses were not very quiet. The smell was extraordinary. The fleas were a disorderly lot, and these things helped the coffee to keep one awake. The family went to bed at nine and got up at two. The beds were very high. One could not climb into them without the help of a chair, and as they were narrow and arched, 
there was danger of rolling out in case one drifted into dreams of an imprudent sort these lofty bedsteads were not high from caprice but for a purpose they contained chests of drawers and the drawers were full of clothing and other family property on the table in my room were some bright-colored even gorgeous little waxen saints and a virgin under bell-glasses also the treasures of the house jewelry and a silver watch it was not costly jewelry but it was jewelry at any rate and without doubt the family valued it i judged that this household were accustomed to having honest guests and neighbors or they would have removed these things from the room when i entered it for i do not look honester than others not that i have always thought in this way about myself for i haven't i thought the reverse until the time i lost my overcoat once when i was going down to new york to see the water-color exhibition and had a sort of adventure in consequence the house had been robbed in the night and when i came downstairs to rush for the early train there was no overcoat it was a raw day and when i got to new york at noon i grew colder and colder as i walked along down the avenue when i reached east thirty-fourth street i stopped on the corner and began to consider it seemed to me that it must have been just about there that smith note one note nineteen o four hopkinson smith now a distinguished man in literature art and architecture s l c end of note one the artist took me one winter's night with others five years before and caroused us with roasted oysters and southern stories and hilarity in his fourth story until three or four in the morning and now if i could only call to mind which of those houses over the way was his i could borrow an overcoat all the time that i was thinking and standing there and trying to recollect i was dimly conscious of a figure near me but only dimly very dimly but now as i came out of my reverie and found myself gazing rapt but totally unconscious at one of the houses over there that figure solidified itself and became at once the most conspicuous thing in the landscape it was a policeman he was standing not six feet away and was gazing as intently at my face as i had been gazing at the house i was embarrassed it is always embarrassing to come to yourself and find a stranger staring at you you blush even when you have not been doing any harm so i blushed a thing that does not commend a person to a policeman 
Also I tried to smile a placating smile, but it did not get any response. So then I tried to make it a kind of friendly smile, which was a mistake, because that only hardens a policeman, and I saw at once that this smile had hardened this one, and made my situation more difficult than ever. And so naturally, my judgment being greatly impaired by now, I spoke, which was an error, because in these circumstances one cannot arrange without reflection a remark which will not seem to have a kind of suspicious something about it to a policeman, and that was what happened this time, for I had fanned up that haggard smile again, which had been dying out when I wasn't noticing, and said, Could you tell me, please, if there's a Mr. Smith lives over there in what Smith? That rude abruptness drove his other name out of my mind, and as I saw I never should be able to think of it with the policeman standing there cowing me with his eye that way, it seemed to me best to get out a name of some kind so as to avert further suspicion. Therefore I brought out the first one which came into my mind, which was John. Another error. The policeman turned purple, apparently with a sense of injury and insult, and said there were a million John Smiths in New York, and which one was this? Also, what did I want with Smith? I could not remember. The overcoat was gone out of my mind. So I told him he was a pupil of mine, and that I was giving him lessons in morals, moral culture, a new system. That was a lucky hit, anyway. I was merely despicable now to the policeman, but harmless. I could see it in his eye. He looked me over a moment, then said, You give him lessons, do you? Yes, sir. How long have you been giving him lessons? Two years next month. I was getting my wind again and confidence. Which house does he live in? That one, the middle one in the block. Then what did you ask me for a minute ago? I did not see my way out. He waited for an answer, but got tired before I could think of one that would fit the case, and said, How is it that you haven't an overcoat on such a day as this? I... Well, I never wear them. It doesn't seem cold to me. He thought a while, with his eye on me, then said with a sort of sigh, Well, maybe you are all right, I don't know. But you want to walk pretty straight while you are on my beat. For morals or no morals, blamed if I take much stock in you. Move on now. Then he turned away, swinging his club by its string, but his eye was over his shoulder my way, so I had to 
cross to that house, though I didn't want to any more. I did not expect it to be Smith's house now that I was so out of luck, but I thought I would ring and ask, and if it proved to be someone else's house, then I would explain that I had come to examine the gas meter, and thus get out the back way and be all right again. The door was opened by a middle-aged matron with a gentle and friendly face, and she had a sweet serenity about her that was a notable contrast to my nervous flurry. I asked after Smith, and if he lived there, and to my surprise and gratitude she said that this was his home. Can I see him? Can I see him right away, immediately? No, he was gone downtown. My rising hopes fell to ruin. Then can I see Mrs. Smith? But alas and alas, she was gone downtown with him. In my distress I was suddenly smitten by one of those ghastly hysterical inspirations, you know, when you want to do an insane thing just to astonish and petrify somebody. So I said, with a rather overdone pretense of playful ease and assurance, Ah, this is a very handsome overcoat on the hat-rack. Be so good as to lend it to me for a day or two. With pleasure, she said, and she had the coat on me before I knew what had happened. It had been my idea to astonish and petrify her. But I was the person astonished and petrified myself, so astonished and so petrified, in fact, that I was out of the house and gone without a thank you or a question before I came to my senses again. Then I drifted slowly along, reflecting, reflecting pleasantly. I said to myself, she simply divined my character by my face. What a far clearer intuition she had than that policeman. The thought sent a glow of self-satisfaction through me. Then a hand was laid on my shoulder, and I shrank together with a crash. It was the policeman. He scanned me austerely, and said, Where did you get that overcoat? Although I had not been doing any harm, I had all the sense of being caught, caught in something disreputable. The officer's accusing eye and unbelieving aspect heightened this effect. I told what had befallen me at the house in as straightforward a way as I could, but I was ashamed of the tale, and looked it without doubt, for I knew and felt how improbable it must necessarily sound to anybody, particularly a policeman. Manifestly he did not believe me. He made me tell it all over again. Then he questioned me. You don't know the woman? No, I don't know her. Haven't the least idea who she is? 
not the least you didn't tell her your name no she didn't ask for it no you just asked her to lend you the overcoat and she let you take it she put it on me herself and didn't look frightened frightened of course not not even surprised not in the slightest degree he paused presently he said my friend i don't believe a word of it don't you see yourself it's a tale that won't wash do you believe it yes i know it's true weren't you surprised clear through to the marrow he had been edging me along back to the house he had a deep design he sprung it on me now said he stop where you are i'll mighty soon find out he walked to the door and up the steps keeping a furtive eye out toward me and ready to jump for me if i ran then he pretended to pull the bell and instantly faced about to observe the effect on me but there wasn't any i walked toward him instead of running away that unsettled him he came down the steps evidently perplexed and said well i can't make it out it may be all right but it's too many for me i don't like your looks and i won't have such characters around go along now and look sharp if i catch you prowling around here again i'll run you in i found smith at the watercolor dinner that night and asked him if it were merely my face that had enabled me to borrow the overcoat from a stranger but he was surprised and said no what an idea and what intolerable conceit she is my housekeeper and remembered your drawling voice from overhearing it a moment that night four or five years ago in my house so she knew where to send the police if you didn't bring the coat back after all those years i was sitting here now at midnight in the peasant hotel in my night-clothes and honoring womankind in my thoughts for here was another woman with the noble and delicate intuitions of her sex trusting me a total stranger with all her modest wealth she entered the room just then and stood beaming upon me a moment with her sweet matronly eyes then took away the jewelry tuesday september twenty second breakfast in open air extra canvas was now to be added to the boat's hood to keep the passengers and valises better protected during rainstorms i passed through the villagette and started to walk over the wooded hill the boat to find us on the river bank somewhere below by and by
I soon got lost among the high bushes and turnip gardens. Plenty of paths, but none went to the river. Reflection. Decision. That the path most traveled was the one leading in the right direction. It was a poor conclusion. I got lost again, this time worse than before. But a peasant of above eighty, as she said, and certainly she was very old and wrinkled and gray and bent, found me presently and undertook to guide me safely. She was vigorous physically, prompt and decided of movement, and altogether soldier-like and she had a hawk's eye and beak and a gypsy's complexion she said that from her girlhood up to not so very many years ago she had done a man's work on a woman's pay on the big keel-boats that carry stone down the river and was as good a man as the best in the matter of handling stone said she had seen the great napoleon when she was a little child her face was so wrinkled and dark and so eagle-like that she reminded me of old indians one sees out on the great plains the outside signs of age but in the eye an indestructible spirit she had a couple of laden baskets with her which i had found heavy after three minutes carrying when she was finding the way for me but they seemed nothing to her she impressed one rather as a man than as a woman and so when she spoke of her child that was drowned and her voice broke a little and her lip quivered it surprised me. I was not expecting it. Grandchild? No, it was her own child. Indeed. When? So then it came out that it was sixty years ago. It seemed strange that she would mind it so long, but that was the woman of it, no doubt. She had a fragment of newspaper, religious, with rude holy woodcuts in it, and doubtful episodes in the lives of medieval saints and anchorites, and she could read these instructive matters in fine print without glasses. Also her eyes were as good at long distances. She led hither and thither among the paths, and finally brought me out overlooking the river. There was a steep, sandy frontage there, where there had recently been a small landslide, and the faint new path ran straight across it for forty feet, like a slight snow-track along the slant of a very steep roof. I halted and declined. I had no mind to try the crumbly path and creep and quake along it with the boiling river and maybe some rocks under my elbow thirty feet below 
Such places turn my stomach. The old woman took note of me, understood, and said what sounded like, Las ma allez au premier. Then she tramped briskly and confidently across with her baskets, sending miniature avalanches of sand and gravel down into the river with each step. One of her feet plowed from under her about midway, but she snatched it back and marched on, not seeming to mind it. My pride urged me to move along and put me to shame. After a time the old woman came back and coaxed me to try, and did at last get me started in her wake, and I got as far as midway all right, but then to hearten me still more and show me how easy and safe it was, she began to prance and dance her way along with her knuckles in her hips kicking a landslide loose with every skip. The exhibition struck a cold panic through me and made my brain swim. I leaned against the slope and said I would stay there until the boat came and testified as to whether there were rocks under me or not. For the third time in my life I was in that kind of a fix in a place where I could not go backward or forward, and mustn't stay where I was. The boat was a good while coming, but it seemed longer than that. Where I was, the slope was like a roof. Where the slope ended, the wall was perpendicular thence to the water, and one could not see over and tell what the state of things might be down there. When the boat came along, the courier said there was nothing down there but deep water, no rocks. I did not mind the water, so my fears disappeared now, and I finished my march without discomfort. I gave the old woman some money, which pleased her very much, and she tried her grateful best to give us a partridge newly killed, which she rummaged out of one of her baskets, and seemed disappointed when I would not take it. But I couldn't. It would have been a shabby act. Then she went her way with her heavy baskets, and I got aboard and afloat once more, feeling a great respect for her, and very friendly toward her. She waved a good-bye every now and then, till her figure faded out in the plain, joining that interminable procession of friends made and lost, in an hour, that drifts past a man's life, from cradle to grave, and returns on its course no more. The courier said she was probably a poacher, and stole the partridge. The courier was not able to understand why I had not nerve enough to walk along a crumbling slope with a precipice only thirty feet high below me, but I had no difficulty in understanding it.
It is constitutional with me to get nervous and incapable under the probability of getting myself dropped thirty feet onto a pile of rocks. It does not come from culture. Some people are made in one way and some in another, and the above is my way. Some people who can skirt precipices without a tremor have a strong dread of the dentist chair, whereas I was born without any prejudices against the dentist chair. When in it I am interested, am not in a hurry, and do not greatly mind the pain. Taken by and large, my style of make has advantages over the other, I think. Few of us are obliged to circumnavigate precipices, but we all have to take a chance at the dental chair. People who early learn the right way to choose a dentist have their reward. Professional superiority is not everything, it is only part. All dentists talk while they work. They have inherited this from their professional ancestors, the barbers. The dentist, who talks well, other things being equal, is the one to choose. He tells anecdotes all the while, and keeps his man so interested and entertained that he hardly notices the flight of time, for he not only tells anecdotes that are good in themselves, but he adds nice shadings to them with his instruments as he goes along, and now and then brings out effects which could not be produced with any other kind of tools at all. All the time that such a dentist as this is plowing down into a cavity with that spinning gouge which he works with a treadle, it is observable that he has found out where he has uncovered a nerve down in there, and that he only visits it at intervals, according to the needs of his anecdote, touching it lightly, very lightly and swiftly, now and then, to brighten up some happy conceit in his tale, and call a delicate electric attention to it, and all the while he is working gradually and steadily up toward his climax with veiled and consummate art. Then at last the spindle stops whirling and thundering in the cavity, and you know that the grand surprise is imminent now, is hanging in the very air. You can hear your heart beat as the dentist bends over you with his grip on the spindle and his voice diminished to a murmur. The suspense grows bigger, bigger, bigger. Your breath stops, then your heart. Then with lightning suddenness the nub is sprung and the spindle drives into the raw nerve. The most brilliant surprises of the stage are pale and artificial compared with this. It is believed by people generally, or at least by many, 
that the exquisitely sharp sensation which results from plunging the steel point into the raw nerve is pain but i think that this is doubtful it is so vivid and sudden that one has no time to examine properly into its character it is probably impossible with our human limitations to determine with certainty whether a sensation of so high and perfect an order as that is pain or whether it is pleasure its location brings it under the disadvantage of a common prejudice and so men mistake it for pain when they might perceive that it is the opposite of that if it were anywhere but in a tooth i may be in error but i have experimented with it a great deal and i am satisfied in my own mind that it is not pain it is true that it always feels like pain but that proves nothing ice against a naked back always passes for fire i have every confidence that i can eventually prove to everyone's satisfaction that a nerve stab produces pleasure and not only that but the most exquisite pleasure the most perfect felicity which we are capable of feeling i would not ask more than to be remembered hereafter as the man who conferred this priceless benefaction upon his race eleven thirty approaching the falls of the rhone canal to the left walled with compact and beautiful masonry it is a cut-off we could pass through it and avoid the falls are advised by the admiral to do it but all decline preferring to have a dangerous adventure to talk about however the truth is the current began to grow ominously swift and presently pretty lumpy and perturbed soon we seemed to be simply flying past the shores then all of a sudden three hundred yards of boiling and tossing river burst upon our sight through the veiling tempest of rain i did not see how our flimsy ark could live through such a place if we were wrecked swimming could not save us the packed multitude of tall humps of water meant a bristling chaos of big rocks underneath and the first rock we hit would break our bones if i had been fortified with ignorance i might have wanted to stay in the boat and see the fun but i have had much professional familiarity with water and i doubted if there was going to be any fun there so i said i would get out and walk and i did i need not tell anybody at home i could leave out the falls of the rhone they are not on the map anyhow if an adventure worth recording resulted the admiral and the courier would have it and that would answer 
I could see it from the bank. Nothing could be better. It seemed even providential. I ran along the bank in the driving rain and enjoyed the sight to the full. I never saw a finer show than the passage of that boat was through the fierce turmoil of water. Alternately she rose high and plunged deep, throwing up sheets of foaming spray and shaking them off like a mane. Several times she seemed to fairly bury herself, and I thought she was gone for good. But always she sprang high aloft the next moment, a gallant and stirring spectacle to see. The admiral's steering was great. I had not seen the equal of it before. The boat waited for me down at the Villebois Bridge, and I presently caught up and went aboard. There was a stretch of a hundred yards of offensively rough water below the bridge, but it had no dangerous features about it. Still I was obliged to claim that it had, and that these perils were much greater than the others. Noon. A mile of perpendicular precipices. Very handsome. On the left, at the termination of this stately wall, a darling little old tree-grown ruin abreast a wooded islet with a large white mansion on it. Near that ruin nature has gotten up a clever counterfeit of one tree-grown and all that, and, as its most telling feature, has furnished it a battered monolith that stands up out of the underbrush by itself and looks as if men had shaped it and put it there and time had gnawed it and worn it. This is the prettiest piece of river we have found. All its aspects are dainty and gracious and alluring. 1 p.m. Chateau de la Salette. This is the port of the Grotte de la Balme, one of the seven wonders of Dauphiny. It is across a plain in the face of a bluff a mile from the river. A grotto is out of the common order, and I should have liked to see this one, but the rains have made the mud very deep, and it did not seem well to venture so long a trip through it. 2.15 p.m. Saint-Étienne. On a distant ridge inland, a tall open-work structure commandingly situated, with a statue of the Virgin standing on it, immense empty freight barges being towed upstream by teams of two and four big horses, not on the bank, but under it, not on the land, but always in the water, sometimes breast-deep, and around the big flat bars. We reached a not very promising-looking village about four o'clock, and concluded to land. Munching fruit and filling the hood with pipe-smoke had grown monotonous. We could not have the hood furled, because the floods of rain fell unceasingly. The tavern was on the river-bank, as is the custom. 
It was dull there and melancholy, nothing to do but look out of the window into the drenching rain and shiver. One could do that, for it was bleak and cold and windy, and there was no fire. Winter overcoats were not sufficient. They had to be supplemented with rugs. The raindrops were so large and struck the river with such force that they knocked up the water like pebble splashes. With the exception of a very occasional wooden-shod peasant, nobody was abroad in this bitter weather, I mean of our sex, but all weathers are alike to the women in these continental countries. To them and the other animals life is serious. Nothing interrupts their slavery. Three of them were washing clothes in the river under the window when we arrived, and they continued at it as long as there was light to work by. One was apparently thirty, another, the mother, above fifty, the third, grandmother, so old and worn and gray she could have passed for eighty. They had no waterproofs or rubbers, of course. Over their heads and shoulders they wore gunny sacks, simply conductors for rivers of water. Some of the volume reached ground, the rest soaked in on the way. At last a vigorous fellow of thirty-five arrived, dry and comfortable, smoking his pipe under his big umbrella in an open donkey-cart. Husband, son, and grandson of those women? He stood up in the cart, sheltering himself, and began to superintend, issuing his orders in a masterly tone of command, and showing temper when they were not obeyed swiftly enough. Without complaint or murmur the drowned women patiently carried out the orders, lifting the immense baskets of soaked clothing into the cart and stowing them to the man's satisfaction. The cart being full now, he descended with his umbrella, entered the tavern, and the women went drooping homeward in the wake of the cart, and soon were blended with the deluge and lost to sight. We would tar and feather that fellow in America, and ride him on a rail. When we came down into the public room, he had his bottle of wine and plate of food on a bare table, black with grease, and was chomping like a horse. He had the little religious paper which is in everybody's hands on the Rhone borders, and was enlightening himself with the histories of French saints who used to flee to the desert in the Middle Ages to escape the contamination of women. Wednesday. After breakfast, got under way, still storming as hard as ever. The whole land looks defeated and discouraged, and very lonely. 
here and there a woman in the fields they merely accent the loneliness note the record ends here luxurious enjoyment of the excursion rendered the traveler indifferent to his notes the drift continued to arles whence mark twain returned to geneva and ouchy by rail ten years later he set down another picture of this happy journey the lost napoleon which follows a b p end of chapter eight down the rhone part two read by john greenman